welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA LOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 23, headlined by a middleweight scrap between Marvin Vittori and the returning Kevin Holland, who just fought Derek Brunson couple weeks ago comes up on the losing end that night he's hoping to right that wrong this weekend against Marvin Vittori a great 15 fight card that the UFC has lined up after one weekend off uh, and hopefully the whole all 15 fights stay on board you know what I mean this is a, a solid card from top to bottom great betting spots here and there but a lot of spots that I really want to just sit back and watch as a viewer and see how certain fighters uh, perform based on the circumstances regarding their fights Nina Ansarov coming off a you know a long layoff, and not to mention that she was coming off giving birth. Uh, Impa Kasanganai going down to 170 pounds. There's a ton of narratives on this card that I'm really looking forward to. One, breaking down for you guys, as I will later in this uh, podcast, and two, just seeing play out again as a fan, and then obviously from a betting eye to see how I can approach that fighter's next fight, and if it's somebody that I want to fade or follow or tail or whatever the fuck. That's what we're here for. Um. Yeah, really can't wait. Let's get into the betting breakdown of my last event, which was Bellator 255, which just happened this past Friday, and it ends up in the green. We are on a five-fight event winning streak, or five-event winning streak, uh, and, and it feels like things are rolling and momentum is really going our way, and we're, it's all due to us going back to our, you know, our, our lock of the night style, our old-school lock of the night style, which is hammer that play, don't give a fuck about the odds, uh, as long as it's not as bad as minus 350. Um... And, 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 you know, obviously take odds into consideration a little bit, but if I'm, I'm super confident on a certain spot, fucking bang that shit and, uh, you know, hope for the best. And again, favorites better than minus 180, I'm hitting at an 82% rate. Easily the best spot in my in my betting, uh, you know, uh, resume, in my portfolio, everything that I've tracked up until this point, that's where I do my best work. And that's what we're going to stick with because that's the lock of the night way. That's how I'm going. I'm, I want to give you guys a spot that you guys can put. Once I get to that the, that thousand unit mark, um, I want to do 5K every weekend or at least 3,500 every weekend uh, and, and be confident that I can hit it at a good enough rate and have a good enough return as well. So that's the old school lock of the night approach. And that's what exactly has been working out over the past five events. And I keep hoping that this momentum is going to continue to continue to snowball and, and get to a better level. And the results are going to continue to show for your boy. So let's get into it. Five, lock of the night play was a four unit play on Khalid Murtazaliyev at minus 275. Now this was actually part of a parlay. We had Mohamed Berkamov going up against Herman Torado. He was a part of this parlay, which made it about minus 169. I think, unfortunately... Berkamov misses weight the day before the fight gets pulled and we get Khalid Murta Zaliyev straight up minus uh, 275 four units way more of a sweat than I wanted it to be right he lost that first round but then luckily he comes uh, strong in the second and third round his grappling works out for him his takedown uh, his, his top pressure works out for him and uh, we get that decision victory so we hit that uh, plus 1.45 units there then the dog of the night comes through as well. Under four and a half in the Patricio Pitbull and uh, Emmanuel Sanchez fight plus 138. One unit hits at pl- uh, to profit 1.38 units. And we end the night 2.83 units up. Slow and steady, baby. That's the old school lock of the night style. And that's how we're going to keep approaching this shit from, a, from an official bet standpoint. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm good at. That's what we're sticking with. So that's five straight. Winning events now that we have uh, once going back to this old school lock of the night style. And I'm very happy that we're cashing these events uh, on, again, five five straight events. We're going to keep it rolling. Hoping for six straight events coming this weekend with UFC. Also, 
Not to mention, there's a Bellator event too, so it might be actually seven straight events if we're able to catch both in on Friday and on Saturday. But this podcast is focused on the UFC event. I will be dropping another podcast in the next day or two to go over the Bellator event, so make sure you guys keep your eyes out for that. Last time I only did the, the five event or five fight, the, the main card breakdown for Bellator. I intend on doing all the fights this time around. So make sure you guys check out that podcast when it drops in a couple days. So yeah, plus 2.83 units. Happy to hit that. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're rolling, baby. Let's, let's get to the sponsors real quick. Uh, CoolBet.com, a great bookie based out of here from, uh, I believe it's based out of Toronto, but it's mainly available in Canada, a couple of Southern American countries, as well as some Scandinavian countries. I have all the countries listed in the description below. If you guys sign up with them and use the promo code MMALOTN2, that's the number two, they will uh, match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks, um, 100%. So you put in 100 bucks, they'll match you 100 bucks. You put in 200 bucks, they'll match you 200 bucks. So make sure you guys check that uh, promo code out. It definitely helps your boy out. Uh, and Coolbet is a great site. Again, they can, you can parlay props there, something that a lot of websites don't allow you to do. And they have great lines on there as well. So most often than not, when you guys see my bet slips, you guys aren't putting out bet slips. Uh, you definitely should be looking into that. Uh, but uh, when you see my bet slips, more often than not, they'll have that Coolbet logo on them. So make sure you guys check out Coolbet. Coolbet.com, promo code MMALOTN2, and get that deposit bonus for your boy. Uh, secondly, Fanatics Fantasy MMA. Make sure you guys check them out. They're a great fantasy MMA app, sleek outlook uh, or, or layout, um, great performance as well. Um, you know, you're able to make groups. I have my own lock squad group. I'll put the link in the description so you guys can check it out and go head to head up against me and the rest of the people in the lock squad group. Uh, but uh, you, you, they cover UFC, Bellator, uh, all the other organizations. They're very well um, received within the community. And again, they're in their beta mode right now. So if you have any criticisms, good, bad, negative, anything that you want to change or add or remove, they're very receptive to it right now. So make sure you guys check it out and help them, you know, round out their app even better. Better. so make sure you guys check out fantasy um fanatics fantasy mma again link is in the description below to, to, to download and, and check those guys out lastly patreon best way to support your boy again i'm doing this full time so patreon is definitely a big part in helping me allow to do that five bucks a month you guys get early access to these breakdowns that you guys are about to watch you guys get access to my best bets and props article which i do drop a little bit of a blurb on a, a live betting approach for every single matchup um but there's also a great discord community where we stay very active and people are super approachable and super fun on that uh great positive community in there uh and uh yeah we got a bunch of other great perks for the patreon make sure you guys check out the description and the link uh link in the description i should say uh and then if you guys want to are so generous to go out there and, and support your boy uh five bucks a month is the way to do it through patreon link is in the description below so make sure you guys check that shit out and support your boy five bucks a month the best uh bang for your buck that you're going to get in the market and it is i will continue to to claim this because it is it is the biggest MMA exclusive MMA betting Patreon out there. We got close to 230 members at this point in time, uh, and it's growing on a week to week basis. And now that we're rolling too with these lock of the nights hits and we're we're stringing all these wins together, I'm expecting that 300 uh, patron mark to hit within the next month, month and a half. Hopefully, two no longer than two months if we can keep this win streak moving. So once again, Patreon link is in the description below. Five bucks a month, best bang for your buck, and I'm gonna I'm gonna look out for you guys as best as I can. All right. That's it for me. 
we're going to check out uh, the, the breakdowns now uh again appreciate all the support if you guys haven't seen already make sure you guys hit that like below that definitely helps your boy out if you haven't subscribed make sure you guys subscribe as well um we're getting close to that 3k mark i'm hoping to hit that 3k subscriber mark in the next couple months here but i got a ton of great uh content dropping for you guys very shortly i'll be making an announcement on my youtube channel very very shortly uh, and then you guys know where you guys can find me every day of the week uh because it's my full-time gig so the more days that i have streams the more happier you guys are the happier that i am and the more that we can grow this mma lock of the night stream so again appreciate all the support as always like subscribe do all this you support your boy and uh yeah hope you guys enjoy the breakdowns good luck this weekend enjoy the breakdowns impa kasanganai versus sasha palatnikov we got minus 290 on impa kasanganai and plus 245 on sasha palatnikov now this is the first fight for impa kasanganai down at 170 pounds in the ufc and i think this might be the weight class for him for some reason to me he just didn't seem like a 185er in terms of his frame and his height and reach and all that stuff but now at 170 i feel like he could be even more successful than he was at 185 Obviously, I, I say successful with an asterisk, asterisk considering that he came off, uh, he is coming off probably a once in a lifetime type of knockout loss to Joaquin Buckley. But I think he took a, per, a perfect amount of time off. You know, six months off is is a good amount of time to go out there and 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 recover from a, a type of knockout like that. And I think it's going to be very important for him to have taken that time off and going up against a, a guy like Sasha Palatnikov, who seems to mainly be a striker and does a very good job from that striking round. But I think that Impa Kasangana is. Just just a couple levels above him in terms of the technique the ability to you know evade big shots uh and, and manage his range and his distance well that's something that i definitely want to confirm before getting into this breakdown but 511 73 inch reach for impa kasanganai and we got uh 6172 inch reach for sasha Platnikov. so Platnikov will still be the bigger guy in this fight but i just feel like the the way that impa kasanganai normally uh, maintains distance and get his strikes off is just much more impressive than what we've seen from sasha uh to this point in time um it, it seemed within the first minute and a half of that Kasanganai and walking buckley fight that impa probably wasn't going to win that fight you know whenever impa was getting his strikes off walking buckley pretty much just bit down in his mouthpiece and was throwing heavy heavy combinations in return and it did not seem like impa liked any of that I don't suspect that we're going to see the same thing here from Sasha, but I think it's going to kind of overwhelm the systems of Sasha once he starts to feel the combinations and the striking technique of Impa. Impa is now down at Sanford MMA, which is another caveat to add to this guy's you know solid potential that we have. But I do feel like he is still being relatively uh, overrated. He's 27 years old, um, has a record of eight and one. That was his first loss when he lost to Joaquin Buckley. But I feel like a guy like Sasha Palatnikov is somebody that he can go out there and not strike over 15 minutes platnikov obviously doubted all or um, proved all the doubters wrong last time around coming in as a heavy heavy underdog against luis cosi and survived that initial onslaught eventually getting a third round finish in that fight and just screaming to the world fuck y'all even came onto my channel so hey sasha if you're watching this hi but uh he he seems to be one of those guys that comes on to predictors videos and kind of just likes to prove guys wrong so i'm sure if he goes out there and springs the upside once again he's going to be on my channel or somebody else's channel saying you picked wrong you're a dumbass but if he loses he definitely won't do that i guarantee you that regardless i think that Ampa Kasangana is going to be a little bit too much for him on the feet technique wise um you know, I think he's coming from, uh, uh, well, I believe uh, Sasha's coming from the Extreme Couture camp. I believe he's over there uh, in Las Vegas. But uh, 
yeah, it, it's hard for me to see how he goes out there and outstrikes a guy like Impa. The, the Kosi fight, you know, Kosi, uh, his fights accumulated for only seven minutes uh, out of the, 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 how many fights did Kosi have? Kosi had seven fights going into that that Palatnikov fight and none of them had gone over like two minutes it was crazy uh the the amount of quick finishes he was able to to rack up on that on that regional scene and uh once he started you know getting pushed a little bit further than he's ever been pushed before that's where he started to break and that's where we saw Palatnikov pull off that beautiful finish at the ending of that or close to the ending of that third round fully taking advantage of the poor gas tank of Luis Kosi so you know, good on Sasha for getting that victory. However, I think he's just going to be outgunned here against Impa, who's going to have the much better combinations, better understanding of the distance striking, and just put it on him from there. I'd be interested to see how this fight plays out if Sasha goes uh, into this fight with um with the grappling type approach. Uh, I'd be interested to see how Impa, uh, you know, reacts to that. And also, I'm interested to see, one, how Impa looks on the scale because he already looks shredded and cut up as shit at 185 pounds. So we'll see how he makes 170. And two, what does the cardio look like for Sasha, or sorry, for Impa, the longer this fight goes? We know Sasha can take some punches and take punishment and come back and win, lights, win fights late. But can he do that against a guy like Impa Kasanganai? And can Impa keep up that type of Price and his type of fighting style, just as we saw him against Mackie Patola, can he keep that up for 15 minutes at 170 pounds? Not sure. Minus 290, in my opinion, a little bit too high of a, a price tag, you know? Uh, I saw him put Kasanganai via decision at minus 105. That's a little bit more accurate. That's a line that I could get behind a little bit more, but we need to see a little bit more from him first at 170 before we can start running off to the sunset and saying, okay, this guy's a mainstay at 170 and we can bet him against guys like Sasha Palatnikov and use him as a solid parlay piece uh, and move forward and, and be comfortable with it. But at this point in time, I'm going to take a step back. I'm just going to watch from the outside as a viewer and see how this fight goes down. But personally, if you guys want to pick out of me and a prediction out of me, I'm going to take Impa Kasanganai to win this fight via decision. Da Unyung versus William Knight. We got minus 135 on Da Unyung and plus 115 on William Knight. And once we see the stare down between these guys, a lot of people are probably going to put some money on Da Unyung due to the height and size advantage that Jung will have coming into this fight. We're talking about close to a 6-inch, 7-inch height advantage for Da Unyung, who's going to be coming in at 6'4 with a 78-inch reach, whereas uh, William Knight will have a 73-inch reach with a 5'10 frame. Uh, and I think that's going to kind of play into William Knight's game plan, which is probably going to close the distance as quickly as possible, try to, you know, put his paws around Da Unyung and try to drag this fight to the ground similar to what he did against Alexa Kamor. I find it very hard to believe that we'll see William Knight really try to, you know, play on the outside and try to land that big blow against Da Unyung, who, in my opinion, has the better striking and will have the striking advantage going into this fight. Not to mention the reach advantage that he'll have. I'm sure he has a, a ton of time to play in that no man's zone, no man's land uh, a zone, which I like to call, which is you know obviously in between the fighters. But William Knight's going to have to go through some shit to try to get to Da Unyoung. But I think he will be able to. I think he'll tuck his chin in nice, try to you know maybe close the distance with a couple shots of his own and then once he gets close enough he'll get his hands on Da Unyoung maybe push him up against the cage maybe try to corral him to the cage and eventually you know move forward and then eventually try to get this fight to the ground but obviously he's gonna have to be worried about some uppercuts and some knees from Da Unyoung uh, and I think that uh, you know that's probably what Jung is going to be expecting here um, 
I I just like Knight's ability to to truly overwhelm his opponents in the in that clinch position. I think he'll be the stronger guy here. Now he might not be the bigger guy, but he's very dense and he has a ton of uh, power and 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 muscles and and strength that I believe he'll be able to kind of overwhelm Jung in that instance. The longer this is on the feet, the worse it is for William Knight, in my opinion. You know, Jung is mainly a striker with a very, you know, a solid combination striking game that he likes to throw at his opponents. But that if you guys go back and watch that Hidisi with the Gima fight, it leaves a lot to be uh, desired for sure. Um, I do like what we see from Knight in terms of his ability to kind of overpower his opponents. His takedown defense seems to be really good. Um, but even when he gets on the ground, he does a good job of nullifying his opponents and what they're able to do with him. Like there's the Rocky Edwards fight and then there's the Cody Brundage fight where even though he gets taken down, he just holds on to them and his opponents are just not able to get out of those situations. And then the referee eventually just stands them up. Um, but that that's also a bad thing for William Knight. Like he doesn't do much to try to eventually get back, back to his feet. It's just hold on to his opponent in a hope that the referee stands them back up. There's no real urgency to try to get back to his feet because he feels like he can nullify the top pressure from his opponent that the referee will eventually stand them up. I don't see Daun going for takedowns here, though. I think that he's going to try to play this at distance and try to land his big bombs, which he's been successful in doing in his last couple of fights. His Sam Alvey fight, you know, that was a close fight, and Sam Alvey had a really good case to actually have won that fight. One judge did score it for him, and then eventually he gets uh, Daun goes out there and rocks and drops him in that third round, and one judge thought it was good enough for him to get a 10-8. However, I thought Alvey did a good enough job to kind of nullify the 10-8 possibility, but that one judge is who it came down to, and unfortunately we end up getting a majority or sorry a split draw in that fight where we had one scorecard for young one scorecard for alvi and the one scorecard being a draw um but yeah that, that was a very questionable fight especially with young coming in as a huge minus 350 favorite not the best uh account of himself for sure before that obviously knocking out mike rodriguez within a, a minute and a half that was a solid knockout and then that absolute slop fest he had against hadisi uh, with where he came in as a plus 245 underdog and that fight was just back and forth the entire time till eventually hadisi's gas tank gave up on him and he uh, succumbed to a standing guillotine choke from da Young. However, I think that William Knight's going to have a slightly better gas tank here, and the ability to grind this out will suck the energy out of Jung even quicker. I think Jung's past, past the path to victory here is getting that early knockout. Otherwise, I think that uh, the, the grinding affair of William Knight, if he's successful in doing so, is going to just drain Jung too much, and he's not going to have enough power and pop on his shots the later that this fight goes. So I'm going to go with William Knight here. I'm going to take him to win by decision. And, uh, you know, at plus 115, I don't mind the odds, but I think the best approach here would probably be to take that decision prop uh, as you might be uh, getting a little bit of extra bang for your buck if that's the approach you take. A lot of people might be looking at this fight as like, okay, these guys are probably going to go out there and try to bang with each other, uh, but I, I don't expect that to be the case here. I actually want to see what the over-under is at here because that might be an intriguing spot to uh, tackle this fight. So the over one and a half is minus 155. It's not a bad spot. That, that might actually be the best bet on this on this card. I think William Knight has some solid durability. The only time he's been or has lost was that one knockout loss that he had to uh, now UFC fighter Tafan and Chukwi. Um, but you know, I, I didn't. He wasn't fully out. I, I thought the referee probably stopped it a little bit too early, given the powerhouse and juggernaut of that type of matchup. I wish they let it go on a little bit more. But uh, you know, unfortunately, William Knight picks up the L that night. However, I think he'll pick up the W this time around. I'm going to take him to win this fight by decision uh, by just grinding out Da Eun over the majority of the 15 minutes and staying away from the big power of Jung and just you know 
sucking that gas tank dry and uh, and grinding him out. So once again, I'll take William Knight to win this fight via decision. Jordan Griffin versus Luis Saldana. We got minus 140 for Saldana and plus 120 on Jordan Griffin. Let's start off with the Jordan Griffin side of things, who's coming off a loss to Zalal. Uh, Yusuf Zalal last time around by decision uh, and that was a tough fight for him he was trying to get that fight to the ground and he was successful at times but Zalal did a good job of getting back to his feet and really making him pay in those situations and then even reversing certain situations in the grappling exchanges and getting the better of him in that spot and uh, Zalal did come away with the decision victory before that we saw uh, Jordan Griffin pull off a beautiful guillotine choke against TJ Brown from a very awkward position I believe he was in half guard if I'm not mistaken and he was able to get enough squeeze that he was able to get tj brown i don't know if brown actually tapped i believe he actually went out and he wasn't expecting to go out given the position that they were in and jordan griffin just has this nasty ass squeeze that he was able to get that victory before that we saw him go out there and have a very very competitive and back from fourth fight against chas skelly where they were just you know trading positions reversing each other and having all these submission attempts unfortunately for griffin chas skelly was the one that ultimately got his hand raised that night via decision now in this fight against Luis Aldana, he's going up against a very crafty striker, a very technical striker in Saldana who has a 20 fight career uh, behind him before coming to the UFC. Now he has six losses on his record and this is something that I talked about uh, a couple weeks ago when I talk about guys that are making it to the UFC or going through the contender series and actually have losses on their records and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing to go out there and, you know, get knocked out or, you know, lose a fight by decision or get submitted or something like that because it shows that you're able to go out there and if you're able to put a string some wins together after that, you know, you, you've adjusted your game, you've made the changes that you need to and you've seen yourself as not being this untouchable guy that, uh, you know, no matter what I do, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to get the victory. Uh, so Saldana showed, you know, a solid three, four fight winning streak or three fight winning streak going into the contender series and then he was able to knock out Vince Murdoch and keep him at range which is very very important in that fight Vince Murdoch obviously coming from uh, the team Alpha Male training camp uh, guys are known for the wrestling and obviously they're they're you know some of their submission games but Murdoch could not close that distance he was having a lot of trouble getting in on Saldana and Saldana just you know picked him apart kept him on the outside and then eventually finished him with a beautiful front kick up the middle and eventually finishing him via ground and pound beautiful beautiful finish from Luis that night um before that you know Carl Whitstock, that guy just didn't seem like he was up to par you know yeah he had a 10 and 4 record going into that fight but he just you know didn't seem like he was ready for what was coming ahead from him from uh Luis Saldana Saldana obviously tried uh you know keeping the fight on the feet Carl Woodstock was going for a bunch of takedowns but Saldana ended up on top and then eventually sunk in that rear naked choke uh close to the ending of that second round and then the Ramiro Hernandez fight a very weird uh uh angle to watch that fight i believe one of his corner men were actually uh shooting that fight for him or or, or recording that fight from him uh and uh you know he seemed good like he was pretty much picking apart hernandez from the outside this is a guy hernandez who had 30 fights under his belt at that time coming in with a 20 and 10 record uh and he gave up after the second round they they pretty much called it after that as he was taking too much of a beating after that Hernandez has never stepped in the cage since then. He did eventually take a couple boxing fights after that, but uh, you know it, it just wasn't a good look that he wasn't able to get off the st- off the stool after that second round. I like what I see from Saldana. You know, he's definitely going to have the striking advantage here. If he's able to keep it at distance and keep it keep his reach uh, intact here, he should be able to go out there and outpoint uh, a very durable Griffin on the feet. In terms of 
uh, metrics here. We're talking 511, 73-inch reach for Saldana. And then for Griffin, we got uh, 510 with a 74.5-inch reach. So Griffin is actually going to have the slight reach advantage in this fight. And that could, you know, be the X factor here. It could allow him to, you know, close the distance a little bit easier, get in on the hips of uh, Saldana and try to get him down and just grind him out. And I think that's actually what's going to be most likely in this fight. I think that Griffin will find his way to, uh, you know, making this a grapple fest, uh, you know, lean on Saldana up against the cage, really make it difficult for him to get out of uh, the bad positions. But, you know, Saldana is very well trained. He's out of the MMA lab, so I'm sure they're going to have him geared up and ready to go. And I believe he has a couple other guys on this card that he's going to be peaking with at the same time. So that's definitely a good thing to have in your back pocket too. Like I said, Saldana... More than likely has the advantage on the feet, but I think it's going to be the, the clinch and the grinding positions that Griffin will end up getting this fight into, and that's probably going to be the downfall here for Saldana. So I'm going with Jordan Griffin to win this fight via decision by just, you know, being the durable guy, getting in on the hips, getting in on the clinch positions, dragging this fight to the ground, and just having a good uh, top pressure game. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Griffin go out there and get a, get a submission victory. Um, we've seen... How many submission losses does Saldana has? He has two submission losses on his record. So he has been submitted by, you know, lesser competition on the on the regional scene. And Jordan Griffin is a very, you know, solid fighter in himself. He doesn't have the greatest UFC record as he hasn't really... What's his, so he had a, a rear naked choke victory on the contender series, comes into the UFC, loses to Danny Gabe, not a bad loss, loses to Chas Kelly in a very back and forth fight, beats TJ Brown, uh, and then loses to the Yusuf Salah. So he's one in three in his UFC career. And I definitely think he's going to go out there and get the victory here and start to right the wrongs of his past. So I'm going Jordan Griffin via decision. Jack Shore versus Hunter Azure. We got minus 150 on Jack Shore and plus 130 on Hunter Azure. Let's start off on the Jack Shore side of things, who's 13-0 coming into this bout. He's 26 years old, uh, and he's a very highly touted prospect, and for good reason. Kind of surprised that the line is as close as it is, to be honest. So let's go over his last little UFC run. He has two fights in the UFC already, where he's been able to submit uh, Nahalan Hernandez in the third round, and then um, Aaron Phillips in the second round. Just a second below that round and a half mark um but he shows off what he showed off in his cage warriors time which is heavy grappling and very good jiu-jitsu not to mention a solid striking game as well which is very much behind that jab where he's able to really set up his uh his strikes or sorry his his takedowns but his striking is good enough that if it requires for him to go out there and, and strike with his opponent he's very good in doing so you know he, he has a very good cardio and a very good gas tank which allows him to put on a pace that most fighters are not able to keep up with and then eventually they break later in their fights which is why he has so many finishes in the second and third rounds fighters are just not able to put up with that pace that he's putting on them and then obviously that's like that that drowning pressure that he puts with his uh with his grappling and his wrestling and his jujitsu fighters just end up breaking eventually and i feel like hunter azure fits that mold of a guy that's eventually going to break even though he only has one loss on his record uh jack shore like i said very good striking game very like he sticks with the basics he doesn't get too flashy or anything like that he does enough to just stay behind the jab one two whatever it is but at the end of the day he wants to close that distance he wants to push you up against the cage and then eventually wants to eventually wants to get you to the ground and he doesn't really give up after that first takedown either right he does a really good job of just 
chaining uh, some, uh, or takedowns together. It's something that he's just working on on a, on a fight to fight basis to go out there and and just you know let's go for the single leg. If the single leg doesn't work, let's switch, switch to a double leg. Let's switch to a trip. Whatever it is, he just does such a good job of getting his opponents down, and he's very determined in doing so. And again, that's that's a further attribution to his cardio because fighters like again Hunter Rogers kind of the flip side of that. Whereas like if he goes out there and shoots a takedown and he doesn't get it, then he just kind of resets, goes back into the striking mode, and then tries to look for his takedown later in the fight. But Jack Shore just goes after it. You know, I mean, he he, he doesn't get too demoralized by getting a takedown shocked or or stuffed or anything like that. He has good enough striking that he can kind of reset on his own if he doesn't go for the takedown again. But then uh, eventually. You know, not too long after that, you'll see him, uh, you know, chase that and pursue that takedown. With Hunter Adger on the other end, uh, has a, an American wrestling background, obviously something that a lot of people put on a higher pedestal than whatever Jack Straw has been doing over on the on the European circuit. Uh, but when you don't have the cardio to back it up, then you're probably going to succumb to the pressure. What this actually ends up reminding me of is Brett Johns against Montel Jackson, who has a decent wrestling background. I'm not sure if it's as good as Hunter Azure's, but we saw the Welsh wrestling of Brett Johns catch up to uh, to Montel Jackson, and Brett Johns was able to get the better of him there. Jack, this is almost the same situation here where Jack Shore, you know, great wrestler, great uh, grappling all around, and not to mention the great cardio, he's just going to keep coming forward, he's going to keep pressuring Hunter Azure, and then he's eventually going to get him down and really start to work on him from that, from that position. Um, like I said, Hunter Azure on the other side, he's 2-1 in the UFC now, first win over Brad Katona, very close fight. Not to, you know, it really came down to that third round. Very, very close fight. Uh, the Brian Kelleher fight, not able to complete any takedowns, and then eventually gets knocked out, knocked around that second round because his uh, his output and his activity starts to wane. His cardio starts to get drained a little bit, and that's where fighters are really able to like catch up to him and 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 you know do the best damage. Again, Brian Kelleher is the only guy to finish, but at this point in time, but even Cole Smith had a ton of success in the third round against Hunter Azure. Has his back for like a minute and a half. Can't end up getting the submission, but I think a guy like Jack Shore is going to make this guy work from the first minute, and then within a round and a half, you're going to see Hunter Azure start to slow down, and that's the main thing here. He might give up a takedown to 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 Hunter Azure, but how good is Hunter in terms of really keeping his opponents down? Jack Shore does a good job of retaining guard, getting back to his feet, or even reversing uh, the position if if that's what's required. Um, I think Jack Shore is just going to have him beat pretty much everywhere. The first round might be the most competitive, but after that, we're going to see the pressure and the resistance really start to catch up to Hunter Azure, and I think that's where we're going to see uh, Shore really start to pull away with this fight. You know, Shore is a very confident pick of mine on this card. I think the guy has uh, Azure pretty much beat everywhere. If you want to talk about the striking aspect of it, again, Shore keeps it to the basics. It's the jab, it's the one-two, it's just staying in your opponent's face and letting the pressure do the work more than the actual striking. Whereas Hunter Azure, you know, again, typical wrestling type of striking style, which is uh, wide winging hooks, uh, you know, a lot of overhand rights and overhand lefts, a lot of hooks, nothing really clean, straight, crisp down the middle. And that's what you're getting from uh, Jack Shore. He knows that's not his game. You know, he knows he's not going to go out there and just completely start knocking dudes out. He wants to set up his wrestling game with his striking. And that's where he does a lot better than Hunter Azure, who we've seen struggle with that, especially against Brian Kelleher. I don't want to shit on Brian Kelleher too much or make it seem like I'm shitting on the guy. The guy had solid takedown defense, which is why Hunter wasn't able to, to, to be as successful with his takedowns. 
So I think that was a, that's what caused Hunter trouble there. And then once he's not able to get the takedowns or once he's not able to control somebody on the ground, then he starts to panic. Then he starts to slow down. Then he, then his cardio starts to come into play. And he has a great training camp behind him, right? Santino DeFranco, those guys over there at um, um, Fight Ready uh, down in Arizona. I'm sure they're going to have him prepped and ready for this fight. But I just don't see him being able to correct those cardio issues, which are truly going to come into play here because he's going to be p- pushed from the first minute. And that's exactly what Jack Shore is known to do, which is why he's 13 and 0, because he goes out there and breaks his opponents. That's exactly what he's going to do here against Hunter Azure, as I expect him to, you know, uh, pressure Azure from the first minute, uh, start landing takedowns. Again, it might not be in the first round, but once that second round comes and that third round comes, and that third round is going to be very critical because that's where I actually see Jack Shore eventually getting the finish here. If Cole Smith and and Brad Katona are getting these great positions on you because your cardio is just not able to hold up. Imagine what Jack Shore is going to do, who I believe has much better cardio than both of those guys, not to better, not to mention better sustainable wrestling over 15 minutes than those guys as well. Wrestling and jiu-jitsu, because he's able to get these second and third round finishes, whether they're submissions, whether they're TKOs, because he has that like an extra lung, whatever you want to call it. But Jack Shore just has great cardio, and I think that's what's going to be the difference maker in this fight against Azure. Yeah, Azure might be the more technically better wrestler here, but if you have if you don't have the gas to back that up, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I expect that to be exactly what happens here against Jack Shore. So I'm going Jack Shore. I'm going to take him to win in the third round. But I'm a little bit tossing it up in terms of is it going to be a ground and pound finish or is it going to be a submission? I'll eventually go out, go with a submission. But I'm definitely liking the third round prop here for Jack Shore as I believe his cardio and pressure is going to be too much for Hunter Azure. And he's going to break him in that second round and probably finish him in the third round. So I'm going Jack Shore via third round submission. Jorgen DeCastro versus Jarjus Dano. We got minus 300 on DeCastro and plus 250 on the returning Jarjus Danho. Um, let's go with Danho first, who hasn't competed since he uh, went to a draw actually with uh, Christian Colombo back in September of 2016. Now he's had at least three fights scheduled in between that amount of time since coming back this weekend. Um, but he's faced USADA suspensions and a, a plethora of other things. But finally, he makes his walk to the octagon this weekend up against Jorgen de Castro. Uh, now, he's only 5-1-1, one one, so he has seven uh, overall fights in his professional MMA career. And it seems for the most part that either he's going out there and steamrolling his opponents, or he's uh, methodically getting picked apart, um, or just getting controlled and not really doing too much right he seems like a guy that goes out there and if he's not able to steamroll you pretty much immediately it's kind of easy to break him like he gasses pretty quickly within a round and a half or so even within a round actually i'd say his best uh attributes are his when he's able to get his thing going or his game going within the first two to two and a half minutes outside of that you could probably beat this guy no regardless right um and the only alliance Omiya Lanchuk and the uh, Christian Colombo fights, both of those fights are ones where, uh, well, actually, the, the Colombo fight, he gets a point taken away. And that was a very interesting uh, interaction there because uh, Christian Colombo had him, obviously, in this uh, position where he was going to knee him to the head. And um, Dan Ho was bending over. And as Dan Ho goes to touch the, the, the mat to be considered a grounded opponent, during that instance, you see Colombo loading up the, lay, uh, the knee and throw it right after um dan ho actually touched the ground so it was a very unfortunate sequence for colombo there who you know seeing as the fact that he was already initiating the knee 
before Dan Hall put his hand down, it shouldn't have been illegal, at least in my standings, right? Like maybe in the in the in the the rule book and all that type of stuff, it, it is an actual infraction. And obviously, he got a point taken away there, given the amount of damage that was sustained after that knee. But like he didn't see that the guy's hand was on the ground, and as he charged up for the for the knee, is when the hand went down. So very unfortunate there for Colombo. Uh, you know, luckily for Dan Hall, he comes out in the fight with a, a draw there. Uh, obviously, if he didn't get that point taken away, he probably would have lost that fight on all three judges' scorecards. Um, but, you know, Colombo is almost a, a similar point to DeCastro in the sense that they're both kickboxers, both guys that really get their work done on the feet. However, I think we see a little bit more output from the Colombo side of things than we'll potentially see from DeCastro here. Then the Omi Ilanchuk, right? Omi Ilanchuk is more of a grappler, uh, kind of grind you up against the cage, take you down and try to palm your face to the canvas. And he was having a lot of trouble doing that to Dan Ho, but even Dan Ho was having a lot of... Uh, trouble get, hang, getting his own game off uh, in that in that fight too so very unfortunate there and then at the end of the fight he eats this this low blow to like the belt line I'm sure it uh, you know um, I'm sure it messed with the cup of Dan Ho which is why he went down but I think him going to the extent of not wanting to to fight anymore I think that was a little bit of a stretch considering there wasn't that much time left in the fight luckily given the rules it goes to a technical decision and only Alanchuk still gets his hand raised that night and I think that uh, Dan Ho was actually considering or thinking that he'd win that fight via DQ uh, and uh, unluckily for him it didn't go his way uh, and then the fights before that right the, the only one that I really have access to so the the two before his UFC uh, debut no access to the one before that against Abdel Karim uh, you know, again, he takes Kareem down pretty much immediately, which is what he did against uh, Igor Swankin as well. And once he gets the fight to the ground, especially against these lower level guys, he just goes, you know, ham pretty much for a lack of a better word there on their on their face. And he's able to get the stoppage job when he's not able to do that. That's when he runs into trouble. Let the fight against David uh, Shevlenz, whatever that Georgian guy. Uh, it is a no contest. And uh David did actually end up winning that fight in a three-round fight, but I think the um, the the reason that there was no contest is because it was probably scheduled for five rounds, given that it was a title fight, and they stopped it after three. Uh, so I think afterwards they actually ended up making a no contest, but David won that fight pretty easily, in my opinion, as he was landing the better shots throughout that fight. Uh, and here against Jorgen DeCastro, DeCastro is the one coming off of a... Uh, two straight losses now to Greg Hardy and Carlos Philippe in both fights where he just didn't seem like he was throwing enough. Maybe he started to gas a little bit in that third round against Philippe as well, where he just kept trying to push him up against the cage. A, you know, a very frustrating fight to watch, especially if anybody had money on DeCastro there at that minus 230 mark. But uh, Philippe was definitely the busier one in that first and second round. Even in the third round, even in getting, you know, pushed up against the cage for the majority of that round, he was the one landing the better shots even on the defensive side. So, uh, you know, very uh, flat performance from DeCastro against Philippe. And then Greg Hardy fight. He has a great first round. I think most judges actually ended up scoring the first round for uh, Greg Hardy, but I thought he did great. Good leg kicks, good calf kicks, something that he really focuses on, especially after his contender series fight. But then his output just significantly wanes. So it's very hard to trust both guys here. Going into taping this fight, I'm like, okay, there's got to be a reason for me to go out there and bet Dan Ho at plus 250, given the the, the state that we've seen Jorgen Castro in his last couple fights. 
But then you run the Danho tape and you're just like, mm, I want nothing to do with this fight. Like, I don't want to be invested into Castro at minus 300, nor do I want to take a flyer on Danho at plus 250. I think the best spot here actually is the over one and a half, which is around even money right now. Plus 100 is the last thing that I saw that. And I think that we can see this be a very slow paced fight. Maybe them coming out the, the, the gate, you know, on fire. But both guys seem kind of durable. Both guys seem like they can take a punch. And if they're able to... Um, endure that initial onslaught from either side i think this fight's going to get dragged down probably go to a decision here um so i i think both guys are durable i think uh de castro probably hits a little bit harder and he's definitely the more technical striker here so i'm definitely going to give him the advantage here but i'm not i'm not too keen on playing him at minus 300 the line that i'm going to be looking at is the over one and a half at plus 100 i think we see this fight get stretched out i think we see both guys eat big shots but still keep moving forward uh however their output and their volume is just not up there so that's a big big concern on either side here However, I'll end up going with DeCastro here, uh, considering that he'll probably implement a couple leg kicks, probably start to stifle the movement of Dan Holm, really take the pop off of his shots, and hopefully he can get some combinations going as well, because that would definitely help his uh, uh, case uh, with the judges here. So I'm going with Jorgen. I'll take him to win this fight via decision, um, but this, this, is a, this is a very tough fight. So we could absolutely see a big upset here. Um, however, uh, the over one and a half again, probably my safest spot, but I'm going to go with DeCastro here being the much more technical fighter and hopefully uh, giving us a little bit more output than what we're going to be seeing from Dan Ho. Not to mention the five-year layoff and the USADA suspension that our guy Dan Ho is coming off of. Everything points towards Jorgen DeCastro except those odds. If we're getting like minus 130, minus 150 on DeCastro, I'd probably take that shot. However, we're getting minus 300, and I'm not willing to bank on uh, a 3-1 to one favorite here, given what we get with Jorgen DeCastro and how he's been looking in his last couple fights. So I'll go Jorgen DeCastro to win this fight via decision, but the best spot, in my opinion, is going to be the over 1.5. John McDessie versus Ignacio Bahamundes. We got minus 190 on Bahamundes and plus 165 on uh, John McDessie. So this is another, you know, veteran versus contender series guy. And uh, I, I do favor the contender series guy in this fight. However, I think that the, uh, the odds are just a little bit too wide here. Now, Bahamundes is going to have a heavy height advantage. I believe it's 6'3 to a 5'9 um, for John McDessie. Let me just confirm those numbers before I start talking out of my ass. 5'8 uh, uh, with a 68-inch reach, 4'1 John McDessie, whereas we got 6'3 with a 75-and-a-half-inch reach for Bahamundes. So he's going to enjoy a 7-inch reach advantage as well as close to a what is that four seven inch height advantage so mcdessie is going to have a lot of ground to cover going into this fight um i think bahamundes is very smooth and slick on the feet the guy has very good striking technique and his ability to kind of switch stances while striking or even just switch stances period is so fluid and very impressive that he's able to go out there and kind of just uh nullify guys and and kind of confuse them in terms of where the striking is going to be coming from now i tried going back to see what you know recently uh similar fights that john mcdessie has gone up against uh, guys of his frame or kind of his style and i know jesus pinedo is you know only one inch taller than him but it seemed like he had a little bit of a reach advantage to him uh but he just isn't the best mold for what ignacio brings to the cage but even in that fight the majority of that fight was just john mcdessie just 
tearing into that front and lead leg of Pinedo and Pinedo just was, really wasn't throwing much. It seemed like he was kind of off of his game and McDessie just didn't want to fully commit on any punches, which is why he was just tearing up that front leg of uh, Pinedo and you saw it bruising pretty much halfway through that first round and he stayed on it for the majority of the 15 minutes. Next time out, we saw Trinaldo go out there and win a decision over uh, John McDessie in a fight where they were pretty much not playing patty cake per se, but they were striking for the most part, but we would see uh, Trinaldo land the more damaging and more impactful shots, which is why the judges ended up giving him the nod that night. McDessie did a decent job of staying away from the big power and landing some good kicks of his own, but nothing was damaging enough that was really pushing or, or you know, winning over the judges, which is why I don't think he got the decision that night. Um, and that that's pretty much McDessie's game. It's weird. Like he's changed camps a couple times now. He went to Rufus Rufus Sport for a little bit. Then he's down at MMA Lab. But nothing in his game has truly changed, right? He's mainly a kicker, a, a guy that likes to throw a lot of spinning shit and doesn't really ha seem to have that much crazy power in his hands. The last time he knocked somebody out was Shane Campbell, April of 2015. And it's just not a good look. Not a good look at all, um, considering his style. With Ignacio, Ignacio Bahamundes, we're getting a guy that just strikes very well. Again, just switches stances very well, which will, I think, kind of confuse McDessie to a certain extent. And uh, we still see Bahamundes land the more impactful shots from the outside, especially using that 7-inch reach advantage to its best uh, best of its abilities. But again, I will hammer the, the fact home here that I think that uh, Ignacio is just too big of a, a favorite here. And pun intended, right? Again, 7-inch height and reach advantage here is going to come into play. And I'm not sure if that leg-kicking approach that he took against Jesus Pinedo or even against uh, um, Francisco Trinaldo is going to work out here for McDessie. I think uh, we see Bahamundes really just paint a picture uh, on McDessie's body and face and, and really uh, light him up from the outside. And I just don't see McDessie, you know, taking a grapple-heavy approach. I don't see that happening. Um, and again, uh, he's going to have a lot of room to cover and space to cover to get in on Bahamundes and land some impactful shots. And that's where I think he's going to fall short. So, you know, hats off for McDessie for taking this type of fight. But I think that he's going to get completely outgunned here. I think Bahamundes shows great skills from the outside, great striking it was really his fight against uh his most recent loss here against uh salvador bachera where he you know he wasn't the one really dictating the pace bachera was the one kind of moving forward landing the big shots landing the more impactful shots uh and then in the chris brown fight we saw him kind of lead the dance for the most part and really put a put a beating on chris brown kind of surprised that it was a split decision win but uh, i thought he did enough to to pretty much win that fight uh, all around uh, and then the Edson Gomez fight, right? That's one where it, it kind of seemed like a, a Bellator setup fight where he's going up against a guy who's much shorter, missed weight, didn't even look like he deserved to be in the weight class, and he finishes him in the second round with a beautiful front kick up the middle. You know, the, that guy had no chance in that fight, and it was very unfortunate that he got, you know, that he drew Ignacio that night, and Ignacio was not going to be denied, and we saw him go out there and get a big victory. Now, Ignacio is only on a two-fight winning streak, right? It's not often that you see fighters get signed that quickly, but this is this COVID era. And he definitely impressed on the contender series. Like, how can you not against a guy like Edson Gomez? Um, given, you know, both their frames and their styles, it was just a great matchup for uh, Ignacio to get his hand raised that night. Um, but I, I think McDessie's in for, for some trouble here. I think he's going to have a lot of trouble closing that distance. And that's where Ignacio will truly get his game going. Whether it's that knee up the middle, whether it's his front kick, or whether it's just uh, pitter-pattering him from the outside. I just don't see where McDessie lands the, the big shots that are truly going to sway the judges in terms of giving him a decision victory here. I think he's got to get a knockout or he's kind of screwed here. So I'll go with Bajo Mendes and I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision.
Norma Dumont versus Aaron Blanchfield. We got minus 245 on Norma Dumont and plus 205 for the newcomer Aaron Blanchfield. Let's start off on the Norma Dumont side of things who still has some question marks but showed a very good account of herself last time around against Ashley Evans-Smith where she came in as a plus 130 dog. It seemed like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I actually think she opened as a favorite in that fight and then we saw a ton of money coming on Ashley Evans-Smith. You know, the more proven fighter, the more UFC-tested fighter and the fighter that we had more um, tape on and evidence on in terms of what kind of fighter they actually are. Uh, and unfortunately for those betters that got in on Ashley Evans-Smith at that plus money, they ended up having to rip up their tickets with Norma Dumont going out there and showing a solid all-around game. You know, in the second round, we see her get top position and have some good control from there, landing some good shots from on top, not to mention a nasty elbow that ended up cutting uh, the side of uh, Ashley Evans-Smith's head. But then even on the feet, you know, I thought the more this stayed on the feet, we would see the car or the, the, the volume and the output of Evan Smith uh, actually, you know, give Norma Dumont some issues. But Dumont was the one obviously throwing a little bit more and obviously with a lot more power on her shots, uh, which was cutting up and really uh, damaging the face of Ashley Evan Smith. And it was very evident that once uh, that 15 minute mark was reached that Norma Dumont deserved to get her hand raised that night. She seems to have a pretty good striking game, you know, a lot of power behind her strikes, and that's something that's going to pay dividends for her, uh, depending on who she fights uh, moving forward. Uh, we do have to make note, though, she did miss uh, weight for that fight uh, by about three and a half pounds, uh, and that was her first time down to 135 pounds in the UFC. Obviously, only her second fight in the UFC. The first one she took against Megan Anderson at 145. Seemed like she was doing well for the first little bit, you know, controlling and clinching Megan Anderson. Unfortunately, once Megan Anderson was able to get that distance, she lands a big shot, drops Norma Dumont and gets the finish there. Uh, so realistically we only have about three fights worth of tape on her and not to mention that megan anderson fight only was one round and the other fight that we have was again only one round against an opponent that just didn't seem like they wanted to be in there but from what we saw in the ashley evan smith fight we saw some very good things from her like i said a solid all-around game good takedowns good takedown defense uh solid clinch control very strong as well something that was very um evident in that fight and then obviously her striking as well like she did a really good job of whenever Ashley kind of crashed forward and tried to get her combinations off. She pretty much stood her ground and returned uh, with the harder, more damaging blows, which definitely allowed her to, again, get the victory in that fight via uh, unanimous decision. Now, here against Aaron Blanchfield, she's going up against a young upstart, only 21 years old, Aaron Blanchfield. But I feel like there's been people screaming from the mountaintops over the last couple of fights for Blanchfield to get signed to the UFC. Unfortunately for her, I think that this isn't the best... Uh, matchup for her to come to uh to come into the ufc with now she's normally a 125 pounder she's taking this fight on short notice coming up to 135 pounds against a fighter that i believe is going to be much stronger which will make it even more difficult for blanchfield to get her uh, very high level jiu-jitsu game going that's something that she goes to more often than not in her fights she's able to you know mix in her striking which is ever improving on a fight-to-fight -fight basis not to mention that head kick ko she had against victoria leonardo who's also now in the ufc uh but even in the brogan sanchez fight we saw her go out there and use her hands a lot more than we've seen from her in the past but it's all to eventually set up that takedown that she ends up landing more often than not and then again she more often than not secures submissions and that's a a, a solid uh game to have again her jujitsu game is very high level in my opinion however the the reason i started her breakdown off by saying i don't think that this is the greatest move for her is that 
It's at 135 pounds. We're talking about a normal Dumont that struggled to make 135 pounds last time around. So this is probably one we're going to want to look back at the, the weigh-ins for and truly make a decision. Okay, did Dumont make weight? Did she struggle to make weight? How does she look on the scales? And how is that going to impact her in this fight against Aaron Blanchfield, who needs to be the fighter that drags this fight to the ground to have success? Now, Blanchfield, like I said, ever-improving striking. That's something that I like to see from her uh, on a fight-to-fight basis. But when she's throwing it doesn't seem like she has the most power on her shots the heaviest shots coming from her are the head kick and i feel like norma dumont will definitely be ready for that in case that is something that ends up landing on her on her head uh but i think that the stronger striker here is going to be norma dumont and i just think the stronger overall fighter will be normal too with that said at minus 245 it think it's a little bit too wide of a line to go out there and play norma at the spot could possibly parlay her but the skills of Aaron Blanchfield are just improving ever uh, on a very solid basis uh, again uh, on a fight-to-fight basis it's getting better every single time that we see her out and she's only 21 years old you know Norma Dumont's 30 years old at this point in time her game is probably fleshed out and maybe she does make improvements herself but I feel like the improvements that we're going to see from uh, Blanchfield uh, will be much more than what we see from Norma Dumont so there's a lot of question marks regarding Aaron and how she's going to perform here at 100 35 pounds but i think that once she actually settles into this uh into the ufc and actually gets this fight under her belt she will more than likely go back down to 125 pounds the only blemish on aaron blanchfield's record is ufc fighter tracy morgan or tracy uh cortez i was about to say tracy morgan because you imagine uh but tracy cortez who did a really good job of you know using her wrestling that's kind of her uh, uh her advantage and her strength uh, and she did it better than uh, than what uh, Blanchfield was bringing to the table. The first round was very weird where we had Blanchfield in like an armbar position for the majority of it. But uh, Cortez was doing a good job in terms of defending and then that in good shots of her own. Uh, and then in that third round, we saw Blanchfield get the top position. But it just wasn't enough for her to get a unanimous decision there. It was actually a split decision victory for Tracy Cortez. So one judge did actually see it for Aaron Blanchfield. But very close fight. Again, even back then, she was only 20 years old. She's a very young uh, fighter and she has a lot of improvements still to make. And I think one of those improvements that she still needs to make is her strength. And I think that's going to be the detriment to her here. Now, skillfully, she might be better than Norma Dumont. But I think on the feet, Dumont will have the advantage with the power and the technique. Um, and then uh, in the clinch positions, especially when Blanchfield is trying to get the fight to the ground, I think she's going to struggle against uh, our girl Norma Dumont here. So I'll go with Norma. I'll take her to win this fight via decision. But I think the line is a little bit too wide to warrant uh, a bet here on Norma Dumont. Uh, but I do like her to win this fight via decision. Scott Holtzman versus Matthias Gamrat. We got minus 235 on Gamrat and plus 195 on the UFC veteran Scott Holtzman. And let's start off with Holtzman. And it kind of surprised me, similar to Sam Alvey, once I saw his age. The guy's 37 years old. He's going to be 38 in September. And that it does come as a slight surprise. He came into the UFC in 2015, so over six years ago that he made his UFC debut. But for some reason, I, I thought he was closer to 30 than he was to 40. With that said, you are starting to see a little bit of a decline in his career, right? And I'm not just saying that because of the Benio Darius loss. Like, you know, can you really bang on him for that? Darius came into that fight as a minus 200 favorite, but also has shown tons of improvements throughout his career. And obviously is fighting against Tony Ferguson coming up soon. So yeah, he's at the top of his game at this point in time. But beating guys like Dong Hyun Ma and Jim Miller at this point in your career doesn't really show me too much. Uh, but the Nick Lentz fight just shows me, you know, all that I need to know. I felt like stylistically that was a great fight for him to win, but 
just couldn't get it going. You know, Nick Lentz did a good job of securing takedowns and putting the pressure on him and, and landing the better shots. And Scott Holtzman could do nothing about it, it seemed. It, it was very, very unfortunate. He just could not get his game going. Uh, before that was his best performance in the UFC, in my opinion, against Alan Patrick, where he pretty much elbowed this guy's face into oblivion in that third run and got that late finish. But since then, his, his skill set seems to be declining on a steady uh, pace here. And I feel like it's a very bad time for him to fight a guy like Matias Gamera, who just got robbed in his last fight. Uh, you know, 30 years old, coming in at, into the UFC originally at 17, you know, now he's 17 and 1. But I think he definitely wants to get that, that loss off his record as soon as possible. And he wants to go out there and make Scott Holtzman kind of pay for it. You know, I think that Gamera will have the better striking here. I think you'll have the better ability to mix up the, the, the MMA game in terms of landing takedowns and, you know, controlling Scott Holtzman where he's able to. And I think that Holtzman is going to very, very much struggle with that. I think it'll be slightly competitive on the feet, but once Gamrot really starts to mix it up with like clinch positions, pushing him up against the cage, or you know dragging this fight to the ground, I think that's where Holtzman is going to have issues. Like if Nick Lentz was having the success that he was having in those grappling and clinch positions, I fully expect Gamrot to go out there and expose the same things from Holtzman's game. I think Holtzman's starting to slow down, and that's definitely going to be very clear here as he's going up against Matias Gamrot, who's just you know. He seems to be on point. He did have a close fight against Gurum. And even though he came in as a minus 270 favorite in that fight, I think a lot of people were just overlooking Gurum. I think Gurum is a very solid fighter. And I think he's going to have a very uh, successful UFC career. Uh, so I think in hindsight, that Gurum loss is not going to look as bad. You know, there's so many instances where like fighters fight guys before they truly flourish inside the UFC. And that could absolutely be an uh, instance for uh, Gurum Kutaladze. Kuta Taledzi, Ladzi, butchering that, super butchering that, I apologize, but yeah, I, I truly like Gamrat to go out there and win this fight, uh, I'll give this to uh, Holtzman, I think he's quite durable, you know, even though he's coming off that KO loss to Benny, Benny Deryush, I'm kind of on an island, I think, where I think that might have been stopped a little bit too early. Like, he gets dropped right away from the spinning back fist and the referee jumps in right away, doesn't really give him an, uh, an instance to, or, or, or an opportunity to kind of you know, to, to to recover or or even try to get back into the fight. Uh, it, it was a crazy exchange though, right? He was getting hit with some big shots. Benny was really having a lot of success. And then once he landed that spinning back fist, I, I think the referee had just seen enough at that point in time. But I still do think that Holtzman is quite durable. And Benny hits like a fucking truck too, right? That's something a lot of people kind of overlook is his power. They just give him his credit for his grappling and just say, okay, you know, he's just a wild striker with not much power. But I think he has some power. You guys can ask Tricard closest if, if he's ever woken up from that fight. But with Gamrot, I think he's more of a precision fighter, right? That's why we see him, uh, you know, going to a five-round decision against guys like uh, Zielkowski, uh, you know, mixing together the full MMA game, right? Even his fight against against Herbst, going going all the way to a decision where he's just picking these guys apart from the outside, smooth, crisp boxing uh, and kickboxing, but then eventually mixing in that ground game, and that's what usually gives him uh, the advantage over his opponents. And I feel like this is a tailor-made matchup for him to go out there and do exactly that. So I'm going Matias Gamrot, Gamrot, and I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision. Jim Miller versus Joe Selecki. We got minus 235 on Joe Selecki and plus 195 on the veteran Jim Miller. Let's start off on the Jim Miller side of things, who's coming off a loss to Vince Pichel last time around in a very close fight, which was kind of back and forth. But more often than not, we saw Vince Pichel getting the better of Jim Miller and ended up uh, getting his hand raised via unanimous decision that night. Before that, we saw him go up against Roosevelt Roberts as a plus 225 dog. And uh, Roosevelt Roberts probably did the worst thing that you could possibly do, but 
you know, I'm sure he didn't mean to do it on purpose, but he ended up slipping within the first 10 seconds of that fight, and he finds Jim Miller, high-level black belt on top of him. And uh, yeah, from that moment on, he was pretty much in trouble right away. We saw him quickly get the, the finish via armbar soon after that, and uh, again, spring off the upset as a plus-225 dog, turning away another young up-and-comer in Roosevelt Roberts. And then before that, loses a decision to uh, Scott Holtzman coming in as a plus-125 dog there. But that was the one. that was one where, you know, uh, another... Not, I don't want to call Scott Holtzman a, a young up-and-comer. The guy's been around for a while, but that was one where he got turned back um, and you know couldn't really overcome the the youth and the energy and the, the strength and speed of a guy like Scott Holtzman uh, in that fight. Jim Miller is up there, right? He's 37 years old. He has 47 fights. This is going to be his 48th fight. Uh, definitely a veteran within the UFC. I think he holds one of the records for most fights in the UFC as well. And, uh, you know, the guy's a scrapper. He goes out there, uh, puts his heart on his sleeve and, and just fights to the best of his abilities there's numerous times where he's gotten finished in the past or he goes out there and gets finishes himself if you want to see the epitome of what Jim Miller is just watch his fight with Clay Guida which didn't even last that long but that was a fight where you see him get rocked and he returns the favor on Clay Guida and then eventually jumps on a guillotine choke and gets the finish there uh even the Jason Gonzalez fight another one where he goes up against a young upstart and it gets a relatively quick finish because uh Jason Gonzalez probably cracked into the pressure there but we know what Jim Miller brings to the game, right? Hard, gritty, hard-nosed type of offense. Uh, decent power in his hands. I'd say underrated power in his hands. Not the most technical striker out there, but still has, like I said, a ton of power in his hands to inflict some damage on his opponents. And then obviously a very high-level jiu-jitsu game that if you, you know, give him give him your neck or if you, uh, you know, make a little bit of a mistake, he's going to pounce on you and more often than not get the finish there. So uh, Jim Miller is definitely somebody not to sleep on, even though he's 37 years at this time or 37 years old. One thing that does tend to happen later in his fights is that he starts to slow down. There are fights where, you know, you see the his opponent really start to pick up steam and take advantage of the fact that his cardio is not up to par. And that's something he just hasn't seemed to write uh, throughout his career. You know, later in the second rounds and then obviously in the third rounds, you see him slow down. And he does have some moments of success in those fights. I'm not saying that he's a, a fish out of water in the third rounds, but uh, he does definitely slow down. And if anybody has better cardio than him, they'll definitely be able to take advantage of that. Just Lucky, on the other hand, 10 and 2, 12 fights on his uh, professional career, 27 years old, and a very highly touted prospect after coming off that Dana White Contender Series win where he was able to submit James Wallace. Uh, I believe it ended up being via guillotine choke. Very beautiful how he ended up setting that up from you know having the back of James Wallace and then eventually uh, setting up that rear naked or sorry that that guillotine choke beautiful finish for him there the the Matt Wyman one he comes in as a minus 400 favorite and everybody's hammering the inside the distance line and then everybody starts to kind of shit on him for not being able to finish a guy like Matt Wyman but you know outside of that Jordan Levitt fight where he just got slammed to his you know and and had his brains pretty much splattered um you know, Matt Wyman just never got submitted before. He had very good uh, submission defense, no matter how much uh, he was like getting pummeled in a fight or how much he was getting dominated in a fight, just like he was against Joe Selecki. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to give up the, the submission. So uh, I, I think that was more of an attribution to Matt Wyman's submission defense than, you know, Joe Selecki not living up to uh, people's uh, potential that they have for this guy. Then he goes out there and finishes Austin Hubbard rel relatively quickly. And he comes in as a pretty slight underdog, plus 100 underdog. And that's right after Austin Hubbard had gone out there and turned away Max Roshkoff, who a lot of people were very high on. And it seemed to trickle into this fight against Joe Selecki, thinking that, okay, if Austin Hubbard was able to stop the submission game of Max Roshkoff, 
you know, Joe Selecki should be a walk in the park, but Joe Selecki is definitely no walk in the park. This guy's a very high level uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt, goes out there and just, you know, rides top uh, pressure very well, uh, you know, cha- transitioning from back mount to full mount to, you know, even just passing guys' guards. He does a really good job of just not staying still and not really. Um, not really accepting a possession position, I should say, right? Once he gets his opponent down, he does a good job of, you know, once he completes the takedown, more often than not ending up inside control, and then from there just has to work to that full mount or even eventually to the back if his opponent ends up giving that up. But he is very, very tough to get off of you. Uh, you know, his striking game is improving a lot as well. That's something that we definitely saw in the Austin Harbor fight and even in the Matt Wyman fight when it was on the feet for as long as it was. He's not a, again, he's not a fish out of water on the feet. The guy's striking game is improving on a fight-to-fight basis he comes out of that john salter uh gym i believe uh he's in north carolina if i'm not mistaken but you even see guys like chris weidman down there at times and i believe weidman actually did end up changing his or moving from uh long island down to uh north carolina which is where again joe selecki is based but He's getting solid training. You know, his coach is obviously very high on him, uh, 10 and 2. It's good to, for him to have had those losses on his record earlier in his career to really, you know, sharpen out the rest of his game and really round out the rest of his game. He got knocked out in one of those fights, but since then, he's never really slowed down. Going out there and getting submission victories in most of his fights, um, again, really getting his game going. Now, Roosevelt Roberts, the difference with him and Joe Selecki is that he's not as comfortable on the ground as Selecki. So once he found himself on his back, he's like, oh, shit. I'm kind of fucked. Whereas Joe Selecki, if he finds himself on his back with Jim Miller, I think he's going to be able to hold his own and maybe even pull off a reversal of some sort. I think that that's something that we could definitely see. The younger, faster, stronger guy here is probably going to prevail. And in terms of cardio, it seems like it checks out for Joe Selecki. So even if this fight gets extended into the second and third rounds, I think that we'll see Selecki really start to take over and uh, really start to make uh, Jim Miller pay. And, uh, you, you know, this... This, a lot of people might say this could be a potential vet lesson for Joe Selecki. However, I think that Selecki is going to go out there and absolutely dominate this fight. I think he's the better striker at this point in time. However, I just wouldn't, you know, uh, advise for him to go out there and just sling we- leather with uh, Jim Miller and potentially get caught on his own. I don't mind with him going into Jim Miller's world, which is the Brazilian jiu-jitsu realm, and try to go out there and, uh, you know, submit this guy. I think he's very live to potentially su- submit Jim Miller the, f- the later this fight goes. However, I will give Jim Miller the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to say he's completely shot at this point in time. I'll say that Joe Selecki actually grinds him out to a decision victory here. But this might be a, this will be a solid uh, test for Joe Selecki to go out there and get a name like Jim Miller under your belt. You know, you're 27 years old at this point in time. This is going to be your 13th MMA fight, your third UFC fight. You already took out a, a veteran in Matt Wyman. You quickly, uh, you know, stifled Austin Humbert, who is a middle-of-the-pack kind of guy. And now you're getting a guy that has probably the most fights in UFC history at this point in time. So go out there, get a dominant win, whether it's decision or a submission, and uh, really stake your claim in this lightweight division. Uh, obviously, it might not get him ranked. You know, Jim Miller is not a ranked lightweight at this point in time, but it's still good to have a record or at least a, a fighter like uh, Jim Miller under your record. So I do like Joe Selecki here. I think his jiu-jitsu game is going to be a little bit too much for uh, Jim Miller. I think his youth, his his power, his uh, strength, all of that stuff is going to come into play here, and it's going to work out for him, and especially his cardio, which is I think, which I think is going to be the most uh, prominent uh, factor and attribute for him to win this fight. So I'll go with Joe Selecki to win this fight via decision. Mike Perry versus Daniel Rodriguez. We got minus 165 on D-Rod and plus 145 on Mike Perry. Uh, very intriguing fight here. Fight here, and I'm uh, 
completely understanding why the line is starting to close. I remember originally seeing minus 185 for Daniel Rodriguez, and now people are starting to get privy on the Mike Perry tape. Uh, and not to mention the fact that Mike Perry has finally aligned himself with the proper team to go out there and try to, you know, start fighting properly and really starting to, you know, uh, start stringing some wins together. His last couple of fights, we know famously, he went out there and was cornered by Latori Gonzalez, who is his uh, baby mama at this point in time. Uh, and even a fan actually cornered him for the last fight against uh, Tim Means. But he's really starting to take it seriously now, especially with uh, the the birth of his son. You got to believe that he wants to go out there and put food on his table for, for his kids and for his wife, or I believe his wife at this point in time, or at least his fiance. Uh, but, you know, he's really got to start putting it together, not to mention the fact that he missed weight as egregiously as he did against Tim Means uh, and, and was, you know, fined a percentage of his purse. I'm sure that definitely hurt his pockets and, uh, you know, had him to the point of like, why the fuck did I do that? Why did I, you know, I'm going out there to fight for money and something that's completely in my control, which is my weight, I just completely neglected it and it cost me a, a certain percentage of my purse, which was even less now, considering that he didn't go out there and get the victory over uh, Tim means that night now you know align himself with mma masters home to guys like miguel baeza uh uh danny chavez kobe covington who just recently went there after he spurred from uh from att uh there's a lot of good guys ricardo lamas another guy uh although he's retired at this point in time just goes to show you you know the level of fighters that mma masters was, was actually able to acquire and uh you know start going out there and getting quality wins and i feel like mike perry fits perfectly into that gym i think that this is a solid spot for him to go out there and learn some new skills and one thing that actually comes to mind now that i'm thinking about it is that mma masters is known to be one of those uh that those teams that goes out there and implements the calf kick very heavily so i wouldn't be surprised if you see mike perry go out there and try to implement a very similar game plan now there are some certain similarities between tim means and daniel rodriguez in terms of being guys that are very technically sound on the feet and work very well behind a jab something that daniel rodriguez does very well from that southpaw position uh he, he has a very piston like jab that he sets up the rest of his striking with but it really does a good job of keeping his opponents on the end of his strikes and keeping them at distance he's gonna have a three inch reach advantage here as well as a three inch height advantage and i think he's going to look to utilize the entirety of that to keep mike perry on the outside and keep him away from the big big shots however I think that we'll see a little bit of a different Mike Perry in this approach. Uh, not to mention, we did see a little bit of a different Mike Perry in his last couple fights. You know, he goes out there, takes Tim Means right off the uh, t takes Tim Means down right off the bat, gets outstruck slightly by Mickey Gall in that first round, but takes him down too and just grinds that fight out. That's not the type of Mike Perry that we've been seeing in his fights against like Jeff Neal, Vicente Luque, and Alex Oliveira. You know, so it's very weird to see him go out there and you know pursue the clinch and pursue takedowns as much as he did. But this time around, I think we'll see him a little bit more comfortable in that striking realm. Again, maybe possibly working behind that calf kick, which is just so uh, influential in the MMA Masters uh, uh, game plans. So that's something that he's probably going to look to do to potentially uh, nullify the, the distance of uh, Rodriguez. Obviously, the closest thing to him to hit would be that lead leg and that, that lead calf. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Mike Perry implement that into his game. Uh, but I also like the, the you know the, the 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 striking of Mike Perry. It has come a long way since he first came into the UFC against Hyun Gyu Lim. But uh, you know going to war against guys like Vicente Luque and and Alex Oliveira, and even though he split those fights, uh, having as close of fights that he did uh, should give you confidence in him at the at these underdog odds. 
Uh, Daniel Rodriguez, on the other hand, again, very sound on the feet. Joe Schilling trained, uh, and we're definitely seeing a progression from him throughout his uh, his UFC career. But unfortunately, he came up on the losing end last time around against Nicholas Dalby, who approached that fight from a karate stance, right? He was very springy and wide with his stance, but was able to get in and out of shots very well. And it seemed to kind of fluster Daniel Rodriguez as he wasn't able to compete at the range that he most often competes at. Uh, Dalby just stayed so far on the outside or so far on the inside where he was able to clinch up against him, uh, up against the cage, have a couple of control minutes and control seconds that he was able to tally up and, and get his hand raised uh, by a judge's decision. But the fact that he was able to go out there and just outstrike Daniel Rodriguez from the outside was very, very impressive. And I just really like that, uh, that type of approach from him. Highly doubt we're going to see Mike Perry come out like that. There's no way we see Mike Perry come out in a karate stance and try to just stay on him uh, from the outside. I think it's more so going to be a, a technical approach. Um, you know, you got a taste of what Daniel Rodriguez will potentially put on you when you fought Tim Means. And I think if he doesn't take anything from that, not to mention, you know, guys at... Um, uh, at MMA Masters, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the coach. I know his... Uh, Last name is Carnero. I just can't remember his first name, but the head coach at MMA Masters must have seen that fight and been like, okay, this is what we need to do to fix it, and it could potentially be behind that calf kick. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's the approach that Mike Perry takes here. So solid dog spot here, in my opinion, for Mike. Again, UFC experience, a new training camp, a Papa Perry. Who knows what Papa Perry is going to bring to the table? That definitely has an effect on how fighters approach their fights, especially when they have another person to take care of, and not to mention it being their own baby. So that's something. Uh, that's definitely a narrative that people need to look into going into this fight. Daniel Rodriguez obviously wants to spring back from that loss that he took to Nicholas Dalby, and this is a great stylistic matchup for him, considering what we've seen from Mike Perry in the past. If that's the Mike Perry from the past that we see. Is Daniel Rodriguez going to be uh, ready for any type of new approach that Mike Rodri or Mike Perry will bring to this fight? We just don't know because we don't know what we're going to see from Mike Perry with this new training camp that he's with. However, I will go with Mike Perry. I'm going to take Mike Perry to win this fight. I think he lands the bigger, more devastating shots. I think he uh, evades the, that jab of uh, Daniel Rodriguez for the majority of the fight while landing the bigger shots of his own. So as long as he's able to uh, come up with a game plan that will help him um, minimize the advantage of that reach that uh, Daniel Rodriguez is going to have here, I think that he should be in the clear to go out there and put on a, a solid performance. And I'm going to take Mike Perry to win this fight via decision. Nina Anzaroff versus Mackenzie Dern. We got minus 140 on the returning Nina Anzaroff and plus 120 on Mackenzie Dern. And let's start off with the Anzaroff side of things. And I did say she's returning. She's actually returning from giving birth to their first child, um, Amanda Nunes and her uh have a child now uh and uh, we're getting mama in Anzaroff for the first time in the ufc here i'm trying to think of other fighters that are coming back from uh giving birth and mackenzie dern is one of them you know she she had a kid before she went out there and fought against amanda hebas and uh she ended up losing that fight but she came back four months afterwards for nina Anzaroff, she has several more months uh to to get prepared and man given her ig and everything that we've been seeing from her physically she looks like she is in shape and ready to scrap however I still need to go out there and see her fight post-pregnancy before I can be super, uh, you know, sold on her. So if people were able to get her at plus money, I think that's a good spot. But here closer to this minus 140 range, it gets a little bit tricky. So how does this fight match up stylistically? Well, Nina Anzaroff, she's a much better striker than Mackenzie Dern. But a lot of people won't be able to pick up on that if they're just looking at that Verna Jandy Roba fight from Mackenzie and be like, oh, her striking looks much improved. 
Verna Jani Groba is not a striker. She's a grappler. Watch all of her fights. She's looking to get fights to the ground. That's where she gets her work done. So that doesn't impress me. It's good that she's getting it done that way. But I need to see her go out there and outstrike a girl like Nina Ansroff before I can be like, okay, her striking is good enough to finally compete with the top 10 in this division. Getting back to Nina Ansroff, her jab is really nice, especially if you watch that Claudia Gadelia fight where, you know, she gives up the first round because she just couldn't stop the takedown. And then as we know, with Claudia Gadelia fights, she starts to slow down. And that's where Nina Ansroff really starts to pick it up, which is, you know, using the calf kick a little bit, but using the jab to kind of keep Claudia Gadelia at range and just busted her nose up pretty much for the entirety of that second and third round. She did such a good job of keeping the fight on the feet and letting her hands go and really letting uh, the striking do the work. Uh, her takedown defense was decent, um, but I feel like um, Mackenzie Dern's wrestling is just not up to that level that we can rely on her to get these takedowns. I think Anzaroff's takedown defense will definitely hold up. I think she has a great group of girls to be working with down there at ATT to make sure that part of her game is lined up and ready to go. Uh, but I think ultimately it's going to come down to the striking. Uh, and, and I think she actually pieces up Mackenzie Dern on the feet here. I think after a round or so, Mackenzie Dern is going to start to be like, ooh, okay, maybe the hands that I've somewhat developed here with Jason Perillo aren't up to par, and I was kind of, you know, false confirming myself uh, in that fight against Verna Jandy Roba. And that's what I think a lot of people are falling into, is just that, look, watch her last fight. Her striking is improved. But now let's see what she does against a striker, like a legitimate striker, right? So... I like Androff here. I think she'll do a good enough job of, of keeping the fight on the feet. I think I saw a statistic out there somewhere where, that, where it said that Mackenzie Dern went 1 of 18 on her takedown attempts in her UFC career. It's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. And Nina Androff has decent takedown defense in, it, in her own right. I mean, against Tatiana Suarez and Claudia Gadelia, you know, those girls are much better at wrestling than what Mackenzie Dern brings to the table. But Mackenzie Dern's most stri or shining attribute or advantage would be the ground game. How does she get the fight to the ground, though? That's going to be the important part here. If she's not able to do that here against Anzaroff, I think she's going to get busted up, and it's not going to look pretty. So I'm going to go with Nina here. I think she has the advantage in the stand-up uh, stand realm. I think she'll be good enough to, uh, in terms of keeping this fight on the feet. Um, I think there might even be instances where we see Mackenzie Dern start to try to pull guard or like start going for rolling knee bars or leg locks or some shit because she's going to start to struggle with the striking that uh, Nina Anzaroff brings it to, to the table. So I'm going with Anzaroff. I think she wins this fight by decision. Um, at minus 140, though, I think it's a little bit too juiced uh, considering, you know, Anzaroff coming back from a pregnancy, giving birth and all that type of stuff. She's taken off the proper amount of time, in my uh, opinion, but she's jumping right back into the, 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 the deep end, right? as as poorly as it seemed that I broke down uh, Mackenzie Dern's skill set, she's still a very good fighter, right? She's still a top 10 type of fighter, top 12 fighter. Um, but I think stylistically with how they match up here, Nina Ansaroff, if she is at least 90% or 80% close to what she used to be, pre-pregnancy i think she goes up there and kind of paints a picture on mackenzie dern's face so i'm going in hands off here and i'm going to take her to win this fight via decision julian marquez versus sam alvey we got minus 190 on julian marquez and plus 165 on sam alvey let's start off on the julian marquez kind of side of things who's coming off a victory uh just under two months ago over mackie patola a great fight a fight of the night affair um in a fight that was very back and forth and probably would have gone to mackie patolo had it seen the judges scorecards luckily for julian marquez he was able to snatch up a dark stroke uh victory in that fight in the third round late in the third round and wins as a minus 165 dog that or, or favorite that night 
He was coming off a two and a half year layoff where before that he had lost to Alessio Di Carico via split decision uh, and, and shit the bet as a minus 135 dog, our favorite there. Um, but we didn't see a crazy amount of improvements from Marquez in his return here against uh, Patolo. It was a very sloppy fight. You know, he has decent striking still. His grappling was uh, definitely leaving something to be uh, desired. But he, you know, toughed it out, gritted it out. There were a lot of fish or uh, very difficult moments for him too. It seemed like the gas tank was starting to catch up to him as well. And uh, eventually, and luckily for him, he was able to pull off that submission without having to have the uh, judges get involved. Sam Alvey, on the other hand, has fallen on tough times, very tough times. He's 0-5, or sorry, he's 0-4-1 in his last five fights. Before that, he had beaten Gian Vellante via split decision. And that he was 2-0 in the light heavyweight division before going into that fight against Antonio Hagerio Noguera as a minus 350 favorite. A lot of people expect him to go out there and knock out Noguera relatively quickly. Unfortunately for those people that were holding a minus 350 ticket on Sam Alvey, He's the one that got knocked out that night. Very, very unfortunate outcome for him. And that started a four-fight losing streak for him. You know, it goes out there, loses to Noguera, gets knocked out by Jimmy Crude in his next fight. Uh, uh, decision loss to Clinton Abreu. Split decision to Ryan Spann in a fight that could have gone his way too. Again, split decision. He probably could have got his hand raised. He had uh, Ryan Spann really hurt at the end of that round. And the first two rounds were not, or end of the third round. And the first two rounds were relatively close. Um, and then the Daun Jung fight goes to a draw. One judge actually ends up giving a... Uh, Al, or sorry, Jung a, a 10-8 in that round three. But, you know, I, I thought Sam Alvey was in that round enough to or to, to warrant a 10-9. Uh, unfortunately for Alvey, he gets 10-8 on that one judge scorecard and it goes to a draw. And unfortunately, Sam Alvey is still winless since I believe June or February of 2018, like I said, when he had beaten Gian Vellante via split decision. The one thing aesthetically that gives me a lot of issues by in terms of wanting to back Sam Alvey is the fact that he's just so content with being on his back foot. He allows his opponent to push the pressure, push the pace, and be the one kind of controlling the octagon. And right off the bat, you're losing in the judge's eyes, right? You're not you're not giving the judges enough right off the bat to be like, okay, this guy deserves the victory when you're the one on your back foot the entire time. With that said, he has a decent enough amount of output from himself where he's like always attacking the lead leg or using his uh, lead right hook to kind of, um, or, or sorry, his lead hook to kind of nullify the forward pressure of his opponents. But then it, again, aesthetically, it needs to be very impactful what he's doing is to his opponents. Otherwise, he's not going to get his hand raised uh, just as it has been over his last three decisions, right? Um, it needs to be more decisive. He needs to go out there and rock these guys like he did against Span in that third round. But he needs to do at least twice around or at least knock these guys out. Now, Julian Marquez, on the other hand, uh, you know, he doesn't have... Um, uh, he seems to have a decent chin, but I feel like Sam Alvey has the type of power to actually uh, break that type of chin. So I think if Julian tries to keep this on the feet, for the most part, he's going to be in some trouble dealing with that power of Sam. Sam does have some decent output, but again, being on that back foot is just not a good look for the judges. And he does, Alvey also has very good takedown defense. So if Marquez wants to attempt to take this fight to the ground, I think he's going to struggle a lot. And I think that might tax on his cardio too. So I'm not sure how much long or for how long he'll be looking to attack the takedowns if that's his approach in this fight. Again, he's a James Krause trained guy, so I'm sure they're going to come into this fight with a good game plan and knowing what they have with Sam Alvey, given the fact that this guy has over 48 fights on his career. Um, they, they should be well prepared. However, I'm still leaning with Sam here. I feel like Sam is the value side. I just personally can't put my money on him. I am going to pick him to win this fight via decision, but so many question marks. This is a shit show of a fight. Um, 
it could go either way. I do believe the, the value is on Alvi, like I'm saying. And the other thing that kind of surprised me here is he's only four years older than Julian Marquez. He's only 34 years old. Weird that a guy that has 48 fights in his career is only 34 years old. It's not often that you see that. Personally, when I was looking at his age, I was expecting to see 38 years old. Not the case here. Sam Alvey is still chugging along at 34, and he probably has another five solid years ahead of him before he calls it quits. Um, but if he wants to do it in the UFC, he has to go out there and get a solid and decisive victory this weekend against Julian Marquez. I think that's what he does. Is it going to be solid and definitive? Not 100% sure, but I do think he gets his hand raised, and I'm taking him to win this fight by decision. But by no means am I saying to go out there and bet him at plus 165. There are some people that are ballsy enough to do it, but not me. I can't do it myself. I think that he wins this fight, but it's such a toss-up. Nor would I trust my money on Julian Marquez at minus 190 either. That's showing against Mackie Patolo, call it ring rust, call it whatever you want, but I want to see him go out there and make a better account of himself before I'm willing to pay him uh, at these chalk odds at minus 190, even if it's a four-fight losing streak, even a one-draw for Sam Alvey, even if it's that type of Sam Alvey, not confident in it. So once again, I'll go with Sam Alvey to win this fight via decision. Kyle Dawkins versus, Al- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this name, but I'm going to try it out. Alias Kab uh, Kizriev. So once again, we got Kyle Dalkas versus Alias Kab Kizriev. We got plus 105 on Dalkas and minus 125 on the UFC newcomer Kizriev. Let's start off on his side, who's going to be, uh, who is coming off a contender series fight where he went uh, or pretty much finished a Shugiyamoto uh, by submission relatively quickly in that fight. And that was one that was a clear mismatch right off the uh, off the jump. You could see as soon as the fight started that, yeah, Shugiyamoto definitely didn't uh, deserve to be in there with Kizriev. And we saw the minus 430 Kizriev get, go out there and do what a minus 430 should do. And he got that fight done relatively quickly. Before that, he survived the, the jaws of death from Rusamar Parlars, who got him into that leg lock position, that famed leg lock position. And he was able to spin out of it, do some good work, and then eventually finish that fight from the top position with some massive ground and pound uh, punches. Uh, very, very impressive to see him generate that type of power and put out uh, Paul Harris the way that he did. Uh, and then before that, the Inomoto fight. That was a great fight to see him you know, show off his full MMA game. He has a solid striking game, but his wrestling is definitely where he shines the most, where he's able to control his opponents for the most part, you know, up against the cage, up to the ground. His passing game is great as well. And I think that uh, he's going to give Dalkis a lot of trouble come this weekend. Again, I think his hands are much sharper. I think his wrestling background will allow him to kind of, you know, either keep this fight on the feet or at least keep it in a realm where he's most comfortable, even if that means just pushing this fight up against the uh, cage and just clinch fucking uh, Kyle Dawkins this weekend. Um, Dawkins, on the other hand, coming off a victory over Dustin Stoltzfuss, where he used the clinch to his advantage, used his bigger fame against Dustin, who just wasn't able to find an answer and how to beat this guy. And then Dawkins showed some great hands, just as he did in the Brendan Allen fight. That's a fight that he took on short notice. I uh, came in against Brendan Allen and had a great fight. If I'm not mistaken, they actually uh, won fight of the night that night. And, uh, you know, he showed a great account of himself, especially as a plus 290 underdog. I'm sure people that had that minus 350 ticket on Brendan Allen were biting their nails for the majority of that fight. But luckily for them, Brendan Allen had that extra gear later in this fight and was really able to take over. But uh, Kyle Dawkins, again, showed a great account of himself, came back and won as a big favorite himself at minus 270 against Dustin Stoltzfus, but we didn't really get to see his famed ground game. Like, he's he is a really good grappler, has a ton of uh, victories via submission, uh, but we didn't get to see it in the fight against Dustin. We saw some great hands, that's something that we saw from him, but... 
the, uh, the his striking defense definitely needs some work here. And that's where I think that Kizrev is going to start to run away with this fight as he's going to probably land the bigger and better shots on the feet. If Daukis tries to go desperation mode with takedowns, I think he's going to be in some trouble dealing with that Russian wrestling style of Kizrev, who seems very, you know, well polished in that aspect. He's thirteen and zero at this point. You know, that's a that's a good sign. Um, and fought some really good uh, competition on his uh, on the on the uh, regional scene over there at Fight Nights Global and on that Russia scene. So I like what we get from Kizriev. I just want to see a little bit more from him, though, right? Minus one twenty-five is not too bad of a line. So if you're a believer of his, I don't mind the taking a shot. But a guy coming off of such a dominant victory over the contender series, there might be a little of extra tax on him just because of how good he looked on the on the on the on that scene. Uh, not to mention the Russian tax. There's always a Russian tax in terms of the odds. But even with you getting minus one twenty-five, I think you're getting a very solid light here on a prospect that I think has a very bright future. So I'm gonna go Alias Cobb. Kizriev via decision, uh, keeping this fight on the feet, outstriking uh, Daukis, and then uh, just grinding this fight out and uh, making it his fight. And that's his type of fight. Good striking, good clinch work, and then good groundwork, and then being good enough on the ground to evade the submission game of Kyle Daukis. So I'll go um, Kizriev via decision. Co-main event time between two surging featherweights here. We got Super Sodik Yusuf going up against almighty Arnold Allen. Very excited for this fight. Let's go over Arnold Allen first and foremost, who's uh, in the UFC for quite some time now under the tutelage of Faraz Ahabi. And he's put together a seven-fight winning streak in the UFC, most, most recently defeating Nick Lentz via decision. And most of his fights have gone to a decision, but what we see is crisp crisp clean boxing technique from this guy and probably one of the best boxing techniques that i've seen in the ufc he does such a good job of moving his feet with his punches as well as just keeping that that balance and that center of gravity by keeping his feet moving no matter where he's moving with inside inside the octagon or no matter what's happening inside the octagon whether he's the one moving forward and throwing shots or he's the one moving backwards or even cutting angles to get out of the way of the the big shots of his opponents he does such a good job of just Again, staying balanced and moving his feet. Probably the best that I've seen in the UFC. Uh, the, the guy is just such a wizard when it comes to his boxing technique. When you have a guy like Faraz Zahabi as well too, to help you guide those types of techniques and those skills, you're definitely in some good hands and you're going to have a lot of success like Arnold Allen has had over his last several fights. He's 16-1 and with only one loss uh, coming earlier in his career. Uh, that came over seven years ago at this point in time. Since then, he hasn't looked back, beating guys like Mads Bernal, not to mention choking out a guy like Mads Bernal, who's had a very uh, high-level uh, grappling career for the majority of his, uh, uh, of his professional career. Um, so that was a very big one for Arnold Allen to uh, specifically get a submission victory. And then the Jordan Rinaldi and Gilbert Melendez and Nick Lance fights, those were just, you know, he pretty much pitched uh, a perfect fight every time out. It would have been nice to see him go out there and finish one of those three guys. However, he just wasn't able to. But he did show, you know, pretty much dominance from minute one to minute 15 in all of those fights. Uh, the Gilbert Melendez one was a great one, though. And most people that are newer to the sport probably won't really understand the significance of beating a guy like Gilbert Melendez. Obviously, at this point in time in the UFC, with him being later on in his career, you know, 35, 36 fights deep, or sorry, uh, closer to 28 or 29 fights deep for uh, Gilbert Melendez, his level of skill has definitely dropped off compared to when he used to be the strike force champion and pretty much run shit in the lightweight division over there. So to come in with the amount of confidence that Arnold Allen did in that fight and go out there and soundly 
he beat Gilbert Melendez the way that he did was very, very impressive to me. Again, say what you want about the level of competition, given where Gilbert Melendez was in his career at that time. For Arnold Allen to do something like that to uh, Gilbert Melendez was very, very impressive. And then after that, go out there and just absolutely torch Nick Lentz. Very solid performance there too. Again, finish it would have been great, but it's still pitching a shutout is just as good as well. You know, going out there for 15 minutes and to soundly beat an opponent that way. The one thing that's very notable about Arnold Allen's career, at least in the UFC, is he hasn't really fought a striker to the level of Sadiq Yusuf. So I'm probably going to go out there on a limb and say he's the best fighter that uh, Arnold Allen is going to have fought in the UFC once this weekend approaches. You know, I think that Sadiq has such a great boxing and striking technique uh, game, just as Arnold Allen does, that these guys are very perfectly matched up. It hurts me to see one of these prospects go out there and have their flame extinguished, or at least taper down a little bit as both these guys you know no matter who loses in this fight i'm not sure how far down the ladder they truly fall but at least one of them will be moving closer to that top 10 top 7 uh ranking um i feel like arnold allen is just a little bit more crisp he's definitely more durable we've definitely seen sodik yusuf get rocked and dropped numerous times uh over his uh you know since the contender series against mike davis and even his fight against gabriel benitez but the great thing that he showed in that benitez fight was the ability to compose himself within the same round and then go out there and knock out his opponent he has one of the i feel like he looks a little bit more stiff in his movements compared to what we see from arnold who's a little bit more loosey with his uh with his striking technique but he's so good i'm talking about arnold here he's so good at just being so crisp and precise with the strikes right down the middle his jab is super quick and that's the advantage i think he's going to have here over sudik which is the speed and the the ability to bring up his jab from pretty much any position rather than being all the way up to his head at all times that's what Sadikus like likes to do, right? He has a very nice high tight guard, but he can definitely be picked apart by straight shots down the middle. And I think that that's what Arnold Allen is going to have the advantage in. Sadiq, I think, probably has the uh, heavier power here, but I also think he has the more questionable durability. So I think that we'll see Arnold land the bigger shots uh, or at least be more live to potentially get a finish. I do see this fight going 15 minutes, and I do actually uh, favor the, the Englishman here in Arnold as I believe that he has a more complete game. Speaking of complete games, the last time we saw Sadiq go, go out there and fight was against Andre Feely, where he went out and showed a solid all-around game. You know, had a very close and competitive first round second round lands a takedown and then just pretty much controls top position for the majority of that round but showed great things in that top position right like his neon belly approach where he was landing some good shots from there while trying to maintain the position was very impressive especially considering that the only thing we've been seeing from Sadiq up until that point was his striking and his pinpoint accuracy and and the power that he has in his hands so even John Anik had mentioned it on the broadcast that it's good to see his his striking uh start to reach or sorry his wrestling start to reach the level of his striking i'm not saying they're on par at this point in time but at least the progression is there and we've seen it especially against a guy like andre feely who's you know a veteran in the ufc at this point in time so that was a very good thing from to see from sadiq's side however i think that arnold is just so well crafted in all areas of mma but his striking definitely stands out the most um so i'm interested to see whether this fight actually stays on the feet for the entirety of the 15 minutes or if one opponent tries to 
go out there and, and try to expose the grappling or the clinching or, or the jujitsu game of the other fighter by trying to take this fight to the ground. Um, however, I do think this fight plays out on the feet for the most part. I think both guys are going to go out there and try to be like, I got the better striking game. And let's see who actually goes out there and actually implements that. I think it's going to be Arnold, though. I think that, um, you know, the fact that we saw Sadiq go out there and pretty much cruise in that third run against Andre Philly was a little bit of a red flag to me. Like, why why Cruz? Are you trying to play it safe? Was your gas tank down up to par? Were you starting to feel some of the power of the punches coming from Andre Feely? What was it that caused you to cruise that round? It was clear as day that he was cruising that round. Um, so that was very, uh, a huge concern. A guy like Arnold Allen does not cruise. Like even though he's going to uh, decisions for the most of his fights, like he goes out there and gives the same effort that he gave in round one to round three, no matter whether he's up or down. The guy is a very solid competitor. He's very uh, well-trained now, obviously with Faraz Ahabi over his last couple fights. And I think it was a Nick Lance fight that he decided to stay in England. Uh, to, uh, you know, didn't really think that it was necessary for him to go out there and, uh, you, you know, uh, train for this Nick Lance fight at TriStar. But based on his Instagram, he's been at TriStar for this entire camp. And it looks like it's going to be working out pretty well for him going into the cage against Sadiq Yusuf. So... I'm going Arnold Allen. I'll take him to win by decision. I think it's going to be a great fight regardless, whether one side wins or the other. But I'm kind of surprised that Arnold is the one that's the slight underdog here. I thought it would be the other way around, given the the more time that we've seen Arnold Allen in the cage. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I definitely do favor Mr. Allen a little bit more here. Uh, and not to mention, he has 17 fights compared to the 12 fights of uh, Sadiq Youssef, again, the majority of those fights more so being in the UFC. And the fact that he's been in the UFC since, what well, when was his first fight in the UFC? June of 2015, which means that he was roughly 21 years old. Sadiq Youssef is the same age as him and, uh, you know, definitely doesn't have that many fights. He has seven fights in the UFC, which is, uh, sorry, that's, that's Arnold Allen, whereas... Uh, Sadiq Yusuf currently has four fights. This is going to be his fifth fight inside the UFC. Not to mention the Mike Davis fight could easily be categorized as a UFC fight, considering that Mike Davis is in, in the in the UFC now. And not to mention that Sadiq Yusuf was roughly like a what was he? Uh, he was a plus one eighty five underdog going into that fight against Mike Davis. So not a lot of people expected him to win in, in that fight. Great fight, probably one of the best fights in Contender Series history. But uh, it, it was good to see Sadiq Yusuf come out on the winning end there. With that said, though, I'm still going Arnold Allen. I think Arnold Allen, I feel so weird trying to say that name as quickly as I'm trying to say it. But I do uh, lean Arnold here. I do think he wins this fight. I think he's a much crisper fighter here. Uh, again, the power might go to Sadiq here. But if we're going over 15 minutes, I kind of trust the, the pressure, the technical abilities of Arnold. Uh, not to mention his uh, quick uh, hands. His jab is a thing of beauty. Um, and, and his ability to just control range so well, not to mention, like, again, the way that he moves his feet with his boxing and, and his strikes and always managing to keep that balance. It's not often that you see him get rocked, dropped, or even off balance to the point that a, an opponent is kind of able to just catch them slipping and, and uh, you know, trip them or something like that. Arnold is such a such a master when it comes to that type of stuff. So I'll go on Arnold here and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Time for the main event. We got Marvin Vittori going up against Kevin Holland, who's stepping in on short notice for a Darren Till, who unfortunately, I believe, fractured or broke his collarbone. Very unfortunate injury for Darren Till and very unfortunate for Marvin Vittori, who's trying to get a top five guy ranked or a top 
ranked guy under his belt other than Jack Hermanson who was number four at the time but uh, I'm sure you want to go and add Darren Till to his record but Kevin Holland steps in on short notice here after his a loss to Derek Brunson about two or three weeks ago now and a very unfortunate loss for him especially considering that uh, you know a lot of people were propping him up to be a very solid prospect considering the win streak that he was on at the time especially that devastating knockout that he had over Jack Souza last time around um, but Derek Brunson goes out there and absolutely puts on a wrestling clinic on uh, Kevin Holland and Holland can just do nothing to get up. I think it was between the, the third and fourth round or between the fourth and fifth round where the coach is just saying, Kevin, you got to get up. And then uh, Kevin's just like, I know, but he's just so heavy, coach. He's just so heavy. I can't do anything about it. And that just kind of goes further to show like how legitimate is the black belt that Kevin Holland has right like in his last five fights he has a submission victory over Charlie Artaveras who you know not really a submission it was more so just an injury that he ended up tapping out to uh, and then whenever he finds himself on the ground, he you know he's not really getting much going other than that Jacare Souza reversal. Uh, even Darren Stewart, you know, what I mean, had so much top pressure against him in that third round that it's just like, where is this black belt that we're supposed to be uh, believing that Kevin Holland has? So we didn't see much of it in the Derek Brunson fight. I will say this though. Uh, even though Derek Brunson seemed to win that fight uh, from from pillar to post, uh, when it was on the feet, it was definitely a very scary or definitely very scary moments for anybody that had a Derek Brunson ticket like myself. Um, you know, you could definitely tell that Kevin Holland was miles apart of uh, ahead of him in the striking realm, and that any time that Kevin Holland landed, you're definitely just biting your nails and just like, ooh, I don't know if Derek Brunson's going to be able to survive this. Luckily, though, Brunson's able to survive on the feet eventually gets fights to the ground and then that's where he's able to control him and uh secure decision victory over kevin holland it's a very poor showing from kevin and uh, it's funny how hot and cold the fans can be with uh, a guy like kevin holland everybody was so hyped and psyched about him going into that Derek brunson fight saying that oh he's you know championship material top three kind of guy and then he goes out there and grind and gets grinded out the way that he did and now everybody's like fuck him i don't even want to see him in this main event against marvin vittori but He's the one that shows up to fight and hopefully he can go out there and kind of right his wrongs from his last fight. But this is a very, very tough fight against uh, Marvin Vittori, who again, he's coming in at a minus 320 favorite. And that's, there's a reason for that. I mean, he's very, uh, he is another fighter that's improving on a fight to fight basis. Since he had uh, lost to Israel Adesanya five fights ago, he seems to have just started to gain this sort of momentum and this traction with the fans. And uh, you see it in the Cesar Ferreira fight, minus 220 favorite. Andrew Sanchez, minus 370 favorite, minus 210 favorite against Carl Roberson. And then minus 130 against Jack Hermanson. That's a Jack Hermanson who was very proven at that point, right? Uh, a guy that just came off a submission victory over Kelvin Gaslam, another highly ranked middleweight fighter um and Vittori closes as the uh, as the favorite in that fight so people are believing in his skills and the fact that he's improving and the work that he's doing with Rafael Cordero is definitely showing off a very improved striking game a very strong striking game very uh big shots that he's able to uh, muster up uh in combinations as well and he's a very strong individual too I feel like Kevin Holland's really going to struggle with that aspect and if Vittori really wants to just go out there and kind of coast here I think he could just take this fight to the ground similar to how Doug Brunson was able to but let's go out there and get some ground and pound going on some some heavy strikes that's going to make kevin holland work and, and feel the damage and possibly succumb to a tko via ground and pound and i think that's kind of the approach that i'm taking here with vittori 
Um, you know, he took that round three off against Jack Hermanson, but then came back strong in rounds four and five, and he won that fight pretty much 49-46. I believe on most judges' scorecards, and one of them actually gave him a 10-8 for that first round where you uh, ended up winning 49-45 on that scorecard. So uh, there's a ton of potential with Vittori, and I think this is a perfectly, uh, perfectly, uh, perfect style matchup for him here to go out there and get another uh, main event victory. Again, unfortunately, it probably doesn't do as much for him as it would have done if he had beaten Darren Till this weekend. But it's still a solid way to go out there and extend this to a five-fight winning streak now. A guy that was, again, highly touted in Kevin Holland. So, uh, yeah, I, I like Marvin Vittori here. I just think he's the better all-around fighter at this point in time. Uh, you know, Kevin Holland, can he knock him out? Not 100% sure. If, if Israel Adesanya wasn't really able to, you know, style on him to the point of potentially knocking him out, I think he would have a lot of uh, time struggling to knock out a guy like Marvin Vittori. So uh, I like Marvin here. Uh, I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Or, you know what, probably third or fourth round TKO. I think he wants to go out there and really put on a statement, especially considering that he's just been getting snubbed the last couple of times. You know, a lot of guys are are pulling out against him. They're just not, uh, you know, um, uh, reaching the fight date. And unfortunately for Marvin, he's going to have to start taking fighters that were lower ranked just to stay active. That's what we've been seeing with, you know, the, the Carl Robertsons and, and the Andrew Sanchez and the, you know, it's it's tough for him. But luckily, he got that Jack Hermanson fight last time around, who was number four at the time. Uh, and now De- uh, Kevin Holland, not too bad of a name to add to your record. But I do like Marvin Vittori here. Better striker, more power in his hands. Definitely going to be stronger in the clinch. And I think those three things alone will be more than enough for him to go out there and get this victory over Kevin Holland, who, again, even said in the cage, people are fighting for belts or people are chasing belts. I just want to have fun. Do you really want to bet on a guy like that? Probably not, especially not against a guy like Marvin Vittori, who was just dead set on getting a fucking title shot ASAP. So uh, yeah, I like Marvin Vittori here uh, to win this fight. Either I'm strong though, I'm not sure if third or fourth round ground and pound or even a decision, but just for prediction's sake, I'll go with third round uh, TKO. And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Helps your boys out a ton. Once again, big shout out to the sponsors, CoolBet, CoolBet.com. Use the promo code MMALOTN2 and they will match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. And um, shout out to Fanatics MMA, Fantasy, Fanatics Fantasy MMA. Link is in the description below. A great fantasy app for MMA where you can track your bets as well as your friend bets and even go head to head up against each other. Very, very fun app. And then lastly, the Patreon, patreon.com slash MMALOTN. Link is in the description below as well. Great way to support your boy who's doing this full, full time now. And the best bang for your buck you're going to get for five bucks a month uh, based on the amount of qu- content and quality and all that shit that I'm putting over there for you guys. That's the best way to support. So I appreciate anybody hopping on the Patreon. Hope to keep the win streak moving along. We got number six and seven coming up this weekend, hopefully with Bellator and UFC. And once again, like I said at the top of the show, the Bellator breakdown will be dropping in the next day or two. So make sure you guys keep your eyes peeled for that because I'll be going over it from top to bottom for you guys. And hopefully we can cash once again this weekend. So good luck. Like, support, do all that shit. Good luck on your bets this weekend. And I'll see you guys next week.